So the third member of our trio that you haven't seen yet is uh, Jen Kaiser. Jen is a PharmD and Associate Professor at uh, the University of Colorado Skag School of Pharmacy. Um, and uh, she uh, has the distinction of being uh, someone who already has an, an eponym associated with her name, the so-called Kaiser Graham, which uh, a go-to chart for drug-drug uh, interactions. So uh, she's going to talk to us about issues of drug-drug interactions, particularly in the setting of HCV, uh, HIV, color-affected patients. I'm Parcel Kimberg and Trisivy, and once daily for Tana Rivers to do her here. She's been on this particular therapy for five years. Her CD4 cell count is 537, and her viral load is um, undetectable. She takes amlodipine 10 milligrams daily for her hypertension. She also has the um, levonorgestrel IUD. She was previously a heavy alcohol user. She's uh, decreased that to one or two beers a few times per week. She smokes marijuana daily. I'm from Colorado. And um, she says she's never used uh, IV drugs. So she had a biopsy two years ago that showed stage two, and uh, there was also a note that she had 10% mild mixed micro-macro uh, vesicular steatosis. Um, Transanulastography was also done recently just to see if that's changed. It was um, 7.1. Her HCBRNA is uh, 4.5 million, platelets 220, hemoglobin 15. Serum creatinine is 0.91 for a GFR of 66. AFT was 184. AST 114. Albumin 4.6. Billy 0.7. Okay. So rather than um, give you all the data here, slide after slide, just one thing you should know before we start is that the cure rates are the same for co-infected patients as they are for Hep C mono-infected patients. So, you can expect 94% or higher SVR rates with whatever therapy you decide to use. Thus, the primary consideration in treating this patient population really is the potential for drug interactions and avoiding those interactions between the HIV meds and the Hep C therapies. So, Dr. Wiles covered our treatment options, and here they are for our patient. Um, so, she most likely non-serotic, right? Her fiber scan result was um, 7.1. For FIB4, I calculated that, I think it was about 1.84. Um, so, panel, do you agree that she's probably most likely non-serotic? Alright. So then our treatment options are shown here. Um, Elvisvir, Rosoprevir, Lidivisvir, Sofosvir, Prolactin, because she's 1A, or Sofosvir, Belkaz. So I only crossed Sofosvir and Sofosvir into Cladisvir and Sofosvir uh, out because we don't see them much, any use much anymore because of the expense. Um, do you, does anyone use sofosphere to cladosphere still? We have a couple, okay. So we can talk about drug interactions with the therapy, um, but basically you can use almost any antiretroviral agent with decladosphere. So drug interactions are less of a consideration. However, decladosphere is kind of like Maravirock. It's very sensitive to CYP3A inhibitors and inducers. So you will have to adjust the decladosphere dose up or down based on the patient's concomitant antiretroviral therapy. Okay, so given what you heard from Dr. Wiles about potential treatment choices, 
which DNA <laughs> regimen would you like to use to treat this patient? Elisabeth Grisoffiger with ribavirin if she has an SIO resistance, prod plus ribavirin, lidipasvir, sifosfavir, or sifosfavir, velpasvir. Vote now. with the during your concentrations. 
So this um, derivative might be a possibility in patients with prod, but there are a lot of caveats. So the person has to be um, not heavily treatment experience, on once daily derivative coming into the treatment, and couldn't have any derivative associated mutations. And even with the um, interaction not being quite as large as um, in the healthy volunteer study, with once daily derivative trough is still about a thousand. And so that's about half of what we see in um, the package insert with once daily derivative in patients that you know are not receiving um, prod. So you might want to use a BID if you have to use it in a treatment naive patient, but you may want to consider switching your antiretroviral therapy instead. Okay, so phosphavir doesn't participate in a lot of interaction. Dr. Riles already mentioned the amiodarone interaction. That one's more likely pharmacodynamic. Looks like something with uh, calcium, either a calcium channel or um, calcium uh, processing of the cell. We're not exactly sure, but it appears more pharmacodynamic than pharmacokinetic in nature. But SOF is a prodrug, so it has to get into the cell and then get phosphorylated to this active metabolite. The active metabolite, um, I call it 007 triphosphate because that's what we're actually measuring is um, the 007 part in the lab. But you'll see in the literature it referred to as GS461203. We can't measure this readily. We certainly can't measure it in a hepatocyte without getting liver tissue. Um, so what we measure instead in those PK studies is this 007 metabolite in the plasma, and it represents more than 90% of the drug-related material. Um, so there, 007 and sophosphere don't seem to um, inhibit any enzymes or any transporters that we know of, but they are substrate, or sophosphere is a substrate for PGP and BCRP. So as Dr. Wells mentioned, you can't use potent inducers with sophosphere like anti-epileptics. But it's all about what you use sophosphere with, right? You're not going to get it by itself. So we did the sphere. The important uh, consideration we looked at the sphere that Dr. Wilde already mentioned is that it's pH dependent. So you have to give it simultaneously with the omeprazole, only 20 milligrams or 20 milligram equivalent in the fit, I'm sorry, in the fasted state. So that's the one thing to keep in mind with this. It's um, mostly eliminated unchanged. So it doesn't participate in a lot of cytochrome P450 mediated interactions. Um, it can participate in PGP mediated interactions, though, and it is an inhibitor of BCRP, and so it has some interactions with statins because of that transporter. Okay, so one consideration, though, is the phosphorylidiposphere, as it relates to antiretroviral therapy, is a possible increase in tenofovir exposures. So we know that the phosphorylidiposphere increases um, tenofovir exposures about, it doubles it roughly with efavirin about a 40% increase with ropivirine. With protease inhibitors is where things get a little tricky. So remember, protease inhibitors um, increase lidivisphere, I mean, increase tenofovir levels. And then you add lidivisphere sophosphavir, and now you have tenofovir exposures that may exceed the range for which we have established renal safety data. So currently, based on this, we have some um, cautionary wording in the guidelines about use of tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate in patients with renal impairment. So we avoid it with sophosphorylidiposphere in those with a creatinine clearance less than 60. And we recommend against use of TDF with sophosphorylidiposphere in people who are on boosting agents for this reason. If you cannot avoid use of a protease inhibitor in TDF, which I think you can avoid it now, I think we have enough options that you um, can avoid it. But if for some reason you can't, 
These patients will need to be monitored more frequently. Um, every two to four weeks, they need to have renal uh, assessments, which include an estimation of the GFR as well as um, urinary protein glucose measurements. There is one study looking at the renal safety of patients on TDF with a boosted regimen and sevospavir lidipasir. This was presented at CROI. And overall, they did see a drop in renal function in all the patients um, by about 10 mils per minute after four weeks of sevospavir lidipasir treatment. But the creatinine clearance did not appear to be any different in those that were on boosted regimens versus not boosted regimens. So it may be that this is such a short um, period of time that we're treating the patients that even an increase in tenofovir exposures may not predispose them to risk, but we certainly probably need more data on this. Yes, Tim? So the, the non-boosted was, if, if one use a non-boosted regimen? Yeah, so in both groups, they saw um, a little bit of a drop in renal function. So from 96 to 90 and 96 to 88, after four weeks of sevospavir lidipasir treatment.
if there's a 50% reduction in valpatacitor levels, then that's considered too much. It also participates in a few transport-immediate interactions. Overall, pharmacology is very similar to lodipasir, though. It also is pH-dependent. And as Dr. Wiles mentioned, the, the instructions for giving it are a little more, they're a little different from lodipasir and a little more complex. Okay, I already showed you the story with um, ephabrins, that there's about a 50% reduction in the ephabrins, I mean, in the valpatacitor levels of ephabrins, so that's not recommended. And then you'll see a similar story as with lodipasir with an increase in tenofovir levels. So, um, you know, that the levels definitely increase. Unfortunately, they haven't released the absolute tenofovir levels with this combination, so I don't actually know if they are the same as with sofosfibrilodipasir, and if they are in that range, we're really kind of nervous with the protease inhibitors and covisistat boosting regimens yet. Um, but we're going to assume now that they are in that same range until we see the data. One thing that is a little more comforting, though, with this combination is that the ASTRO-5 study actually did include patients that were on boosted regimens. There were 56 patients in the study that were on boosted regimens, and they did not have a change in their creatinine clearance. So we have a little more comfort with using um, tenofovir-based regimens with boosters with sofosfavir and valpatosphere, um, as long as you realize that this is patients that have really good renal function at baseline because they would have included patients in that study that had impaired function. Or we could use TAP, as we already discussed. <coughs> okay, so besides the antiretrovirals, there's other interactions that we have to consider. Um, if you were going to use any of these therapies, Solomil, Lodivisvir, Sofosfavir, or Prod, which drug do you not have to worry about? Which drug will not interact with any of these therapies?
don't share needles, right? Don't share needles. Well, I had one patient say, oh, I never share needles. I just save my needles, and then I use them again later. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, you're going to reinfect yourself with, you know, with your own used needles. So it's something you don't necessarily think about, but education is really important. And then from a pharmacology perspective, it's something you don't always think about, but what if we had used fraud for this patient? Our patient was only on lodipine. We would have had to reduce the dose. When's the right time to increase that amlodipine dose back to where it was before? And um, uh, there was a study from Abby looking at this. And uh, it's not just based necessarily on the half-life of the drug, so that's always a consideration. But they had a study with amlodipine that showed if they increased the dose the day after they finished the prod treatment, that it was fine, that it didn't increase their risk for you know, having um, hypertension or anything. And then when you see them at SCR, it's time to educate them again, just in case they forgot anything you said last time. If they're in F0 to F2, you can kiss them goodbye because there's um, no divorce and cirrhosis. This is a quote from Nancy Rowe. <laughs> and you'll always need to screen them for um, hepatocellular carcinoma. Okay, I um, eat, sleep, and breathe jargon rations, um, but I can't remember them all. And, and so I use resources, and I expect you guys to as well. Um, there is, in, for interactions, there's the DHHS guidelines, and then, as um, already mentioned by Ken, we have a table of antiretroviral interactions in the AASLD guidelines that we keep updated. But for other drugs, I rely on the University of Liverpool site. Raise your hand if you've used that site. Okay, if you haven't used it, you need to, to use it. It's great. It's fast, which we all need. Um, you just click with use the drop down menu and pick out the Hep C regimen you're interested in, and then you type in the concomitant medication that you want to look up. The only thing you have to remember is European spellings, um, cyclosporins with an I. Okay, so in summary, I think the primary consideration in treating co infected patients is drug interactions. Um, for most of the DAAs, their pharmacology is pretty well defined, and we know what to expect with regard to interactions, but there are, of course, some unknowns. And then being able to identify um, therapeutic classes with problems and developing a plan for managing those interactions is imperative. Other questions? That's up for those with seizure disorder. Should they all be switched to Capra before we use any treatment? Yeah, I think that's a safe alternative to consider. Unfortunately, there are some patients that don't always do well. Kepra. So um, one thing that you might consider, and this would be very brave, and I would like to help you if you decide to do this, is to try to get approval for 24 weeks of Sovascovirilidipasvir, but you use two pills a day for 12 weeks, and then I would do drug levels to see where their Sovascovir and their Lidipasvir are in real time to give you some guidance on, uh, you know, if this looks like it's safe or not. You might also use Rivemire just for some extra protection, but, you know, I think it's worth investigating because you know, we've had some patients that we try to switch over to low acetam and it just doesn't, doesn't work the same. Okay. Any other questions?